Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here and uh, you somehow remember to set your car- clocks uh, ahead. Uh, but today is a great day as we look at a super passage out of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up and turn to the book of Titus. Uh, there should be a Bible if you didn't bring one uh, in the seat in front of you or beside you and uh, just grab that. If you're not sure exactly where Titus is, that's why they give us a table of contents in the Bible. Uh, but if uh, you just like to find yourself, find the, the last part of the Bible, the book of Revelation, hang left, and you'll run into the T books pretty soon, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and we'll be in Titus chapter 2 uh, this morning. You know, uh, this, it's a great opportunity to be, uh, be alive in so many different ways, and one of, the, one of the stages of life that I'm going to talk about right now is I have grandchildren, grandkids, and they were over for an overnighter on Thursday, and, and one thing you like to do is just have fun. It's kind of where, uh, where I'm at most of the time. I, I like to have a lot of fun, and, and they like to tell jokes. Now, what, what's the favorite kind of joke for, you know, two- and five-year-olds? Anybody know what they are? Knock-knock oh, jokes. You just had it right immediately. So a couple weeks ago, I already knew that that was their favorite type of humor in terms of telling a joke was knock-knock, so I decided... You know, there's a lot of things about knock-knock jokes I don't know, and it's always, uh, it's always good. This is one thing for many of you, you'll at least learn something today in church today, is I was saying, who, who was the first one to ever write a knock-knock joke? Oh, all right, right in the front row, Maya, coming from the Morris family, uh, she, it, she answered the question, you might not have heard it, but there was a couple things when I found the right answer. Uh, initially, Google, Mr. Google told me, the bard. And I had no idea who the bard was. The bard means poet, the poet. And the poet is William Shakespeare. And he told the first knock-knock joke. And Maya, do you know which, which particular piece of literature? Oh, I got you right. In Macbeth, in the second scene, I believe it was, he told a knock-knock joke. Now, I would repeat that for you. However, it just wasn't that funny, so I'm not going to tell you that joke. But, but anyway, uh, it really became popular in America in the 1930s, and uh, it, they kind of developed from there. But I want to tell you one knock-knock joke because it kind of relates to, to one of my experiences a couple week, weeks ago. Knock-knock. Uh, my key. My key won't open my car door because I lock my keys in the car. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced that where the things happen in life you just wish didn't happen, you know, and, uh, and usually it happens for the Sometimes the right reason, the wrong reason. I was in a real rush on that particular morning. I wanted to get into the store before this guy who was pulling up. And I wanted to, you know, I'm sometimes in a rush. And so I was just rushing like crazy to get out of my car. And when I did that, I got out so fast that I left my keys in my ignition. Okay. Now, most of you are saying, well, how'd you, how'd you lock your door? Because you have to have a remote, you know, to lock your car. Well, my... my um, luxurious Hyundai accent um, doesn't have one of those uh, things on my, my keychain, and so I, I, I can lock my door without using the remote control or whatever you want to call that. And, and so I learned the, you know, the, the, the lesson, and I wish I could tell you for the very first time that I've ever locked my keys in the car, but the tenth time I've locked my keys in my car, that you, know, you can be in too much of a hurry. And as we think about that, as we looked at last week when we were looking at what God says to us about getting healthy and particularly getting spiritually fit, but spiritual fitness really speaks in so many areas of life that we, we show a life that is filled with wisdom living, is that so often we can get caught up doing things, and the only person we can blame is what? Ourselves. Uh, you got that pretty quickly. And, and so whether it's uh, being the brunt of a knock-knock joke and locking your keys in the car or some other reason, 
uh, we can look at our lives, and if we're honest, there's, there's a lot of things that could be changed about how we live or some of the patterns we fall into or some of the foolish things that we do. Would, would you agree with that? Shake your head like I'm not the only foolish one here, right? And so sometimes, as I was thinking about the, what we shared last week from the book of Titus, and it just to get us back into the context of this book, Titus is a book in which it gives us a template for the church. And really what we've tried to picture that as is God has a plan for the church. He has a blueprint. There's a, there's a ways that we ought, ought to be and how we ought to function, how we ought to live out our faith, not only individually but corporately. And so in the first chapter, it's only three chapters long, he, he really speaks to us about if you're going to do the church right, you need to get leadership right. And so he really talks about raising up leaders in your church that can primarily set an example for what it means to follow Jesus and uh, lead the church in a, in a way that honors him. And then in chapter 2, he kind of turns the corner, if we're looking at it from a kind of a clear perspective, he goes from getting leadership right to getting people right in the church, God's people. And he begins uh, pretty powerfully, and in, in, in chapters, it, it, you probably are aware of this, it, the, the chapter divisions are not inspired. They were done later on as the books were multiplied in print, and so it helps us kind of find things, and there weren't verse markings when it was first written. Has anybody ever written a letter personally where you put a verse to every sentence? You know, we don't write letters that way as well, but every, every statement is so important, so they began to put numbers to the, the sentences or, the, or a couple sentences, and they began to divide the books and chapters. But a chapter, before chapter 2 becomes chapter 1, and, and closing chapter 1, he says, I want you to know there's a lot of people who profess to know uh, the Lord Jesus, profess to know God, but if you look at their life, they're so far from God, it's easy to conclude they don't know God. Their, their lives are despicable, which is kind of a strong word. Sounds like a, the, the name of a movie, doesn't it? Despicable. Okay, we won't go there. Okay, oh, uh, just disobedient. Their, their lives, and we all struggle be, being obedient 100% of the time, but their lives are by, by just direction and and observation are so far from trying to really obey the true, the simple, clear truths what God has for us to live. And so I said, I don't want you to be a, a people that professional God, but don't, but don't live it out. So then he speaks to everybody. He speaks to people who are older and people who are younger. He speaks to people who are male and people who are female. He says, look, I, here's some things I want you to know about how you ought to live out your life. And as I was thinking about that, and I, I tried to share at least uh, somewhat um, exhaustively, not in terms of all its detail, but there were four or five major points, but there were 30 sub-points, which basically he said, hey, let me give you God's will in, an, in, in a rapid-fire perspective as far as this is how you got to live. And, and there were some things that were challenging. Uh, in fact, all of them were challenging. We, we, ought, to be, uh, uh, we ought to be a little bit more... Uh, under control, we ought to be temperate. We ought to be a little bit more dignified. We ought to be doing that which is appropriate in every setting. We ought to be more sensible. We shouldn't lock our keys in our car. We ought to be sound in our faith, which means when not only should we trust God more fully and completely when things don't go right, when things go mostly wrong, but we ought to know what we believe. We ought to be people who are always growing in our love for one another. We ought to be people who, who, who put a, a governor on our tongue. We ought, we ought to watch what we say. We, we, we don't we don't maliciously speak about others. And probably in a room like this, we, we could probably have many of us, even this past week after hearing we shouldn't be malicious in our gossip of others, thinking back, you know, there were some things I said about people probably didn't need to be, need to be said. 
And, and so as you're looking at all those things, we could be saying, well, what is this book? Well, what is this Christianity? Is it a, basically a religious self-improvement program? We're saying, okay, here, here are the things you ought to do, and here's the things you shouldn't do, and just try a little bit what? Do I need to start all over just to get you warmed up? You know, if I'm not trying to tell you what things you ought to start doing and some things you ought to stop doing and say, well, how's that going to be done? Well, just try a little harder, right? And in many ways, uh, that is, can be successful. In fact, that's part of living out the Christian life. We give our best effort. We give all that we are to Him. But it fundamentally and primarily is, is not a self-help program. Because just working harder to live out the Christian life won't, what? It won't work. Uh, there, I, I forget who the uh, pastor or theologian, you know, said this first. And I guess if I can't remember who it said, I could just say I said it first. But, but that wouldn't be true. But the thing is, is that the Christian life isn't, isn't difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. You know, just take any of the, the, the amazing statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you've heard it said that you ought to love your neighbors yourself. You ought to, uh, well, I tell you, you ought to love your enemies. Uh, anybody here really good at that? You know, that, that we, we ought to be, not only forgive people, for, you know, for a few mishaps as they treat us, but you ought to for, forgive them, you know, not just three times, seven times, but 70 times, 70. You know, you ought to, it should be, your forgiveness ought to be so pervasive that no matter what people have done to you or people you care about, you're willing to forgive them because you have been what? Forgiven. So the, so the Christian life is, is not just difficult, it's impossible. And so what I want to say this, this morning, and if, if you miss many of the things I have say, you know, the title really kind of capsulizes what I want to say to all of us, is we think about when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, and if people were to look at our lives, what we want them to be able to conclude as far as how do you explain how that person lives or that person you admire that knows Jesus, the only way to explain it, it is a God thing. Or to put it another way, it, it's a Christ thing. That the only way, and they don't do it perfectly, and, and one of the ways for us to shine brightly for Christ is that when we mess up, we fess up, right? That we admit when we fall short. Because it's so easy not to want to do that, right? We want to somehow blame shift. We want to somehow explain why we did what we did or why we didn't do what we should have done. And, and, and so we, we somehow put this, uh, this, this mask on. And it's not us. It had to be something else that caused us to do that. And, and what he's really saying here in this passage is we're going to look at that as we think about living it out in a, a church that's following the, the pattern or the, the template or the blueprint, it's got to be a God thing. It's got to be a Christ thing which gets our focus back where it should be. It should be really all about Jesus. So is Christianity simply a religious self-help program? The answer is emphatically no. It's a Christ thing. So getting healthy spiritually is possible, however. So it's not something it's, it's impossible, but through the Spirit of God, through what Christ has done for us and continues to do through us and for us, we can live out God's plan in our life. Well, how, how is that done? Well, it's done because of God's grace. God's grace, or charis, or charis, uh, is, as far as in the original language, is a word that has multiple meanings in the sense of its depth. 
But it really is, it's God's undeserving favor. It's God's undeserving help. It's God's powerful help in our lives. It's God doing for us what we can't do on our own. It's God empowering us. It's God motivating us. It's God leading us, guiding us through his strength and not our own. And it's God's finished work but continuing work. God has, as some theologians say, that we have we have. Past grace, present grace, and future grace. God's grace will never uh, uh, run out. It's, it's sufficient for everything that we need in our life. So this morning what I want to do in just five verses, I want, I want us to look at some things in which how God's grace allows us to, to be and to live out what he has for us. So getting healthy spiritually is possible because number one, and here we'll get into the passage, it is the grace of God that saves us now from the penalty of sin. And so we want to look at that beginning at verse 11. And it says this, For the grace of God has appeared. And really what it's saying here, it's been manifested. It has given us a clear look at what it really is all about. It's come out of the shadows and come into the light. And what does the grace of God initially do for us? Uh, the, the grace of God brings salvation to all men. Now, uh, hopefully as we unpack this, it'll, it'll become progressively clearer as we, as we look at how that makes a difference for us now and in the future. It's God's grace that brings us into relationship with Him. It brings us salvation. He's not, he's not saying that that everyone in the world gets saved, universal salvation, but that the gospel is given as a universal opportunity to everyone. Not everyone, not every man, not every person, uh, man, woman, boy, or girl, comes into relationship with God, but every man, woman, boy, or girl has opportunity to come into relationship with Him. And why? Because of God's grace. And I'm not going to debate the whole Calvin-Arminian perspective right here. But the issue here is that the message goes out to everyone, and everyone is without excuse if they respond to what God has offered to them. Now, what does God offer and fundamentally in the very beginning? He, he offers relationship with Him. And so He offers salvation. Salvation is a word in which we, we, you could... Define a lot of different ways. It's, it's God's rescue plan. It's God delivering us from something that we cannot deliver ourselves from. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that, that we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. So we, we are spiritually dead, and God's rescue program, His salvation program, His grace program is delivering us from that which is going to bring us eternal separation or death from Him. And fundamentally what it is saying is this is the gospel. You know, what is the gospel? We, we often describe it in the ABCs, but let me describe it in a different way today. It, it's really all, it all begins with God. And, and who is God? God is that supreme being who created everything in the universe that we, that we can see and, and that which we can't see. And that God loves us. He created us in his image. And in the very beginning, it was for the purpose of having a relationship with him. God loves us. And God is holy. He's completely pure and righteous. But there's a problem. 
Number one is, initially, we don't love him even though he loves us. And then secondly, God is holy and we are not. And because we are not holy, and the Bible describes that in terms of how we act that out as sin, and sin is missing the mark or standard that God has, has as his standard for living. And since we are disobeying, disobeying God, transgressing, transgressing his law in our lives, uh, that we are separated from him. And, and what we need to realize, and this is the gospel, is that it's not just something that it's, it might be good for us, is that we desperately need it. Because the Bible says that there is a penalty for our sin. There's a penalty for our lack of holiness. There is a sin, for, there is a penalty for that which separates from, us from God. So God loves us and God is holy. Man is, does not love God and is not holy and our sin or our unholiness has a penalty attached to it. And, and that, let's just be honest. We all realize that. When, when you do something dumb and you do some, something foolish or you do something wrong, are there consequences for that just on the natural realm? You know, when I locked my keys in the car, you know, I prayed about it, but my keys remained in the car, right? You know, and I, I was looking around, who, who did this? Well, the only person who did it was me. And there's a natural consequence for things that we do that are stupid or foolish. And the reality is there's a consequence for rebelling against God. And that's going to be forever separation from him in that place called hell. But as we think about that, that's why Jesus came. That's why God invaded history. He invaded the history so that the God who is holy and loves us, to the people who don't love him and are not holy, that God would, would do that which would, would, would satisfy the penalty for our sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid fully and completely for the penalty that our sin so justly deserves. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And then there's the offer. In fact, that verse goes on and says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there comes that place as we realize God is holy and we're not. We are sinners, and there's a penalty for our sin. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. He gives us the opportunity to respond to him in faith. And we do that when we repent, turn from our sin, and trust in him and put our lives in his hands. And we come to that place where we, 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 we present ourselves to him and ask for his grace and mercy to be applied to our life. He forgives us of our sin and we begin that journey of a relationship with him. And that's what that verse is saying. For by the grace of God has appeared, made man manifest, bringing salvation, the opportunity to be free from your sin uh, to everyone. And implied in that is not people who just profess to know him, but do know him, but to have a relationship with him. You know, there's a word for that in the Bible. Uh, what happens when you are freed from the penalty of your sin? It's justification. Justification is that place when God declares you righteous, not because of how good you are, not because you, you have somehow done pretty well on a self-help program, but you have received what God can only give you. You, you are declared righteous. And, and just, to, just to color this a little bit, this is all based on the grace and the goodness of God. In John chapter 1, just want to read this section to you just real briefly. This is all, again, about Jesus. 
Uh, some of you are familiar with the first part of John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being. Well, who is this Word? Well, in verse 12, it goes on and says this. It says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave right to become children of God, even those who believed in His name. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, it's got to be Jesus. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father. And then it says this about him, full of grace and truth. See, we, we come in a relationship with God. The penalty for our sin can be satisfied because there is one who came who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, but the one who was full of God's grace, the ability to oversee our sin. And what happens when that, when that occurs in our life? Just throwing out a couple of verses here. In Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, it doesn't really get any better than this, does it? As you think about a holy God and we're not holy, and there's a penalty for our unholiness, is that when we come to faith in relationship with Jesus, His grace is, is, is showered upon us. And we're no longer under the penalty of sin, which means we are no longer under his condemnation. And see, this is such a motivating thing as far as how we live out this impossible life that is only made possible through the grace of God. Because how, how how can we not desire to please one who has erased the penalty of our sin that we so justly deserve? In Romans 8, it says, God has not given us a a spirit of fear, but he has adopted us into his his family. If you have your Bibles, or just listen as I turn in. 1 John 4, verses 17 and 18. I I think I shared this story once before, but uh, did any of your children or grandchildren, or you remember any time where you used to be afraid of the dark? Okay, where, you know, you'd go go in your room, and maybe it was the first time you you had... uh, um, separation anxiety and your parents are in another room and you're in this room and uh, it's dark and you go what this some bad things could happen to me and uh, our daughter who was 16 at that time no she was uh, you know, she was much younger much younger but you know she went through a whole period of time where she was just totally fearful and I, I would quote this verse at her all the time that's what happens when you're you know you're born into a family the pastor's there you just get verses for everything but I'll read the whole context First John 4, verse 17, it says this, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Therefore, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And that was the point I would just share with you. I said, you, know, you don't need to be afraid because there, there's a perfect love. And that perfect love is from above. And his love is overseeing you, and you don't have to live in fear. Now, the real fear there is, this verse continues, is, and the one who fears is not perfected in love because fear involves punishment. We, we, we talked about this in some of our life groups this week. It's, it's our memory verse you know, for the month, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And as you think about it, what, what's the worst thing that could happen in this life? You could, you could die. Now, for the believer, what's the best thing that could happen to you? You could die, right? 
So no matter what you might be afraid of, the worst thing that could ever happen to you, if you know Jesus, you're going to be with him. And you have no fear of what might happen to you. And, and trust me, there, there are a lot of religious people in this world that when you get it down to them and you talk to them and say, do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? You know what the answer to them, the, from them is? I have, I, I, no one knows for sure. But for the believer, we do know for sure that when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. We don't have to live a life of fear here. And, and primarily because there's no condemnation from a God who forgives us from that which separates us from him and has taken away the penalty of our sin. That's what justification is all about. We have a lot to be motivated to live out a life that pleases him because, look, we, we have not only the now but the future to be excited about. It's the grace of God that saves us now from the penalty of sin. This passage goes on. Let's, let's go after it. He goes and says... Uh, in verse, verse 12, I get better, I guess I get, ought to get back to Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 12, it says this Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, I'm going to unpack that in a moment, but what's, what's the point here? Initially, it's, it's the grace of God that saves us now from the penalty of sin, it's the grace of God that enables us now to have power over sin. So as we think about those things that challenge us, and there's a whole list in Titus 2, 1 through 10, it's challenging, but what God wants to tell us very plainly, I want to instruct you, and he does it through Paul to Titus, to the churches at Crete, and now to us as well, I'm instructing you that you can do this. The word instruct there is an interesting word. It really has the idea, I'm going to train you to do this. I'm going to educate you about what this challenge is to live out the life that I have called you to live. And God never tells us to do something that he's not going to empower us to be able to what? To do it. I mean, what kind of parent asks a child to do something or a young person or even an adult to do something that they, they, there's no possible way for them to do? God never does that. And so through Paul to Titus to us, he's instructing them. Here's the things I want you to do. He gives them another list to die ungodliness, anything that does not honor me, worldly desires, those things that, that well up in your heart and, and in your emotions. You, you, I just got to do it, or I just got to get what everybody else has. You, you don't have to be governed by that. Uh, to live uh, sensibly, not foolishly, to live according to my standard, righteously and godly, doing things again that, that mirror who I am. You can do this now in the present age. And, and you're saying, well, is that really backed up by other passages of Scripture? Well, of course it is. In, in Romans chapter 6, just the first part of that, read the whole section, it says this, even in verse 11, even so consider yourself to be dead to sin. And then he goes on, and you know all the members of your body, your hands, your, your feet, your, 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 every member of your body that could be involved in sin, don't, don't present them to, to, for unrighteous deeds, but to righteous deeds. Why? Because you are no longer in, in the Spirit uh, chained to that which used to govern how you lived. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, it says, Oh, oh, by the way, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not 
carry out the desires of the flesh. And he gives a whole list there. Now, if we're honest, sometimes we look at that list and say, well, I've done quite a few of those things since I've been a Christian. Well, when you did them, you did it by the power of your old life, the flesh, the habits of the old life. But you didn't do it by the power of the what? Do I need to start all over? It begins with letter S. I didn't do it by the power of the Spirit. And so isn't this almost unbelievably good news? Is that, okay, we are in a challenging um, life of living out what God has done for us and is doing for us. But the good news is, is that when we are walking in the Spirit, we don't have to do those things that, that, that dishonor Him, that, that hurt us, that gives us the effects of our sin even now. Because if we walk by the Spirit, we'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then, I didn't put it in here, but if we want the positive side of it, if you walk by the Spirit, you'll experience the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Uh, that's, that's a pretty good promise, isn't it? And, and so in the midst of living in a world in which we live the tension of falling back into living according to the patterns of our own life, the flesh, we, we have an alternative to walk in the Spirit, and He sets us free from the power of sin. You know, we could go on with that. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God has not given us the spirit of timidity or, or fear, but of power and love and, and discipline or a sound mind. So, so as we think about it, I just, I just wish I had a little bit more power in my life. We got all the power we can, we can hold on to. It's just we need to plug it in. And the same idea in Romans chapter 12. Don't, you don't have to be conformed to this world. You can be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of your mind is reminding yourself of the, the resources you have in Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, now there's a word for that. And the word for that is not justification, which is declaring us righteous. That happens at salvation, but sanctification, which is setting us apart to live a life that honors Him. Now, as we've just talked about those first two points, the only way to describe the Christian life is not a self-help problem. It's got to be a what? That's the title of the message. It's got to be a God thing, right? I told you you could forget anything I said, but you couldn't remember, forget my title. It's, it's a God thing, right? Does that make sense? What, I, what I've talked about here, there is no way to explain the Christian life other than being a God thing. It's a Christ thing. He's the only way to save us from the penalty of our sin and from the power of our sin. Now, it's an ongoing journey for us, but it's really a God thing, so we need to always remember that. It's really all about Jesus. Thirdly, it's the grace of God that not only saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin. It's the grace of God that assures us in the future we'll be free from the presence of sin. Now, this, uh, this sermon is, is given to you by the letter what? P, all right? It, it, so it's the power and it's the penalty. It's the presence of sin. And that really gets down to, well, this sounds really good in theory, but I, I'm struggling by living it out in practice, right? Well, there is a, a future in which we will experience this completely and fully because we do have opposition. We have the evil one, Satan, who's always tempting and trying to mess us up. We have the world that tries to press us into its mold. We have the, we have the patterns of our own life, which is the flesh, and we, we tend to remember what our flesh wants more than what the Spirit wants, and so we struggle with it. And what he wants to tell us, look, we can overcome 
and we are overcomers, but, but just let's be real. This is not going to live out perfectly until we're in the presence of our Savior. And, and so it's the grace of God that assures us in the future we'll be free from the presence of sin. Now, where do we get out of that out of Titus? In verse 13, it says this, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Yeah, we're not, we're not planning to live in the condition we're in right now forever, okay? That would be insanity, you know, trying the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. It's, it's not going to be perfect until we're in the presence of the perfect one. Anybody want to say amen to that? Okay, so we need to remember that. And so we are always looking we're looking for Jesus to come and, and the glory, that, the amazing experience that will be to be in his, in his presence. In fact, in 1 John it says that, that, that when we see him, we'll be like him. There's all kinds of passages we could, we could return to. But, but turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, it really, it really speaks about what, what's going to happen when this, this, this experience comes, into, comes to pass. Verse 51 Behold, I tell you, mystery, we will not all sleep like some of the people who didn't put their alarm clock right. Uh, You didn't quite get that one. Okay, behold, I tell you, mystery, we will not all sleep. He's not talking about just we're not all going to die. This is going to happen when some people are are still uh, alive. That's when Jesus returns. But we'll all be changed. But in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And, and so, you know, as we think of the future, all that we see here and all that waits us down here, that's all going to be changed. There will be no struggle against the flesh. The flesh will be eradicated completely. There will be no enemy, the evil one, that will be tempting us. The world, which will be changed completely by God, will not be pressing us into its mold, but into God's mold. That will change everything. In Philippians chapter 3, and we just went through that uh, in our PT with God, uh, and we're now going to another little book called Esther, so I encourage you to to jump into that little book uh, as we uh, give you an opportunity to spend some time in, in the Word of God. But Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So really, this world is not my, what? Home. That's, that's got some theology in that book. This world is not my home. Now the problem is, we as God's people often make it our what? Our home. We get so preoccupied with the worries of this world, for all the failings of this world, and and we need to realize, really, we're just, you know, we're just, uh, we're just here for a temporary period of time in, in relationship to all of eternity. Our real place of residence is, is in heaven. And, and so as our citizenship is there and we're living here, what should we do, be doing in the meantime? Uh, looking for uh, Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Now that's religious language to say, look at we have a lot to, to look forward to. That we will in the future be delivered not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but from the presence of sin. 
And part of it is that we won't be participating in it because we'll be totally changed. Now, that's only going to happen completely until we see Jesus. And just, I did this on purpose, but in Revelation, I put in your outlines Revelation chapter 20, but it's Revelation chapter 21. Now, I'll just fess up, I just lied. But anyway, Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5, not chapter 20. This is what heaven's all going to be all about, and the familiar passage to some of you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I didn't, you say, well, it didn't say sin in here. Well, what, what causes our, our, our pain and our crying and our hardship and the things that just destroy us? It's, it's sin. And if it's not our sin, it's somebody else's sin, right? Heaven's not going to be like that. And so as we think about this program, this is not a self-help program. It's a God program. We need to look into the future and realize God's going to deliver us by His grace from the presence of sin. Now, that's future. The first two were present. We are now saved from the penalty of sin. We are now saved from the power of sin. But it's only in the future we'll be saved from the presence of sin. So if some of you think whoever wins the next election is going to change it all here in the United States, don't put your hope there, right? Now, we ought to vote, and we ought to do the best we can, and we ought to be involved in the process. But look, at there's only one who's going to change everything, Right? And then finally, it's the grace of God. Oh, did I give you a word for that? It's the word glorification. Romans 8 gives that whole list of, of words there other than the one I'm going to give you to finish this message up. But there, there comes a point when everything is going to be glorious. Uh, our lives will be totally changed. And, and that is something we can look forward to. But then he closes the section out with these last verses in Titus, and I just want to hit them fairly quickly. He says, um, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That's, that's what I just read there, and I got to throw this in for free. Is, you know, this is a great passage on the Bible plainly saying that Jesus is who? He's God, right? And, and you can say, well, couldn't you take it in different ways? Well, you could try to, but if you look at it grammatically, it would not make sense. As you look at, this is all for free here, it's not in your notes, but Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. There's only one definite article here. And it's, so if you only have one definite article, you're usually speaking about one person. Secondly, as you look at it, uh, he, he speaks about the great God. And essentially in the New Testament, it's not in the Old Testament it says about God the Father that he's great. But in the New Testament, the word great is only used for Jesus. Uh, secondly, it's, it, it's talking about the appearing. Well, the appearing... Never does the Father appear in the, in, the, in the second coming of Jesus. It's only about Jesus. So you have all these things talking about, uh, about one person. Plus, in terms of personal pronouns, you, you, you only have that which is singular in terms of the, the original language here. So he's talking about a person, that person who is a great God and a Savior is Christ Jesus. But as we, as we look at that, then it goes on and tells what, what does this great God and Savior do, Christ Jesus, Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. 
These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Which, which basically is saying, like, you know, there are people and there are subjects and there are issues that, you know, we can have differences of opinion on, right? Well, you know, that's your opinion. That's my opinion. That's what I think. That's what you think. It all matters. It just matters what you believe. As long as you believe something, it doesn't really matter what you believe, but as long as you believe. It, well, some things that might, that might be true is whether you think the angels are going to have a winning record this year. You know, I think they are, whether they're not going to. You know, you could talk about things that, that might be important to you, but it doesn't really matter, right, in terms of that. Uh, I just want to tell you the Lakers are not going to make the playoffs. Okay, now, maybe they'll go on a great run and they'll happen. But, you know, th- those things, it doesn't really matter. They're opinions. But what he's saying here, I-, I want you to realize that what God does, you have authority to say this because I'm, I'm saying it plainly. He's brought salvation to all men. He can save anyone from the penalty of sin if they come to faith in him. Yeah, he-, he saves us from the power of sin. God is able to allow us to live out his plan in our lives. Oh, by the way, you're looking in the future, it's going to be awesome. We're going to be saved from the presence of the sin, uh, our sin. And, and what he does, he concludes a section here, how I would put it this way. It's, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that redeems us now and in the future to be purified from our sin. And this has both the now and the later. He, he wants us to realize, I have a plan for you. Remember when we began, we talked about the gospel. What is the gospel? You know, God loves us, and God is, it's the H word, God is holy, right? He's sinless. He's perfect. He, he, he lives according to the, the, the plan that has always been, to, to live life as he lives it in all its fullness, separated from that which is destructive and evil. And, and, and that's how he lives, and that's how he wants us to live. And in the future, we will live it perfectly. We will, we'll, we will be pure as he is pure. We'll be like him. But he wants us to live that now as well. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, Peter writes of this in terms of God's plan for us to, to live a life of, of, of being set free. The word redeem there, it's from the Greek word lutrao, which means simply to be set free. Uh, to be released. It was used of releasing slaves from a life of slavery. It was used of, of telling soldiers that their service was, was, was no longer needed and now they could go back to their homes. And, and, and what he's saying here, I want you to realize that, that you have been set free and, and you are set and free to live the life God has always intended you to live like he wanted Adam and Eve to live in the, in the garden. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, we have these words. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And look forward to that day when everything will change. But then he talks, that's the future, but then he talks about now the present. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the formal lusts which were yours in your ignorance. We talked last week and this week, as we think about being a follower of Jesus Christ, when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, then change happens. And if change doesn't happen, then we have a legitimate reason to question, do I, have I really made that commitment to Christ? Now, it's not going to be a, it's going to be a progressive change, but he, he, he tells them this, as, as obedient children, do not be conformed to how you were formerly, which were yours in your ignorance. Some of that was you didn't know better. Some of it was you, you knew better and still did it. 
But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And that's the whole idea, you know, remember that we talked about knock-knock jokes, you know, the favorite jokes of children. You know, one of the other favorite, one of the favorite games of children is, you know, follow the leader, right? Whatever the leader does, you're supposed to do, or you're out of the game. Now, God keeps us in the game, but we need to realize that as we're following the leader, we want to be holy like he is holy. If the other key words are justification, sanctification, glorification, I, I call this culmination. The culmination is to realize that, that God's plan for us is, is to be like Jesus. In fact, that's what Romans chapter 8 says, that, that we should be like Jesus. That's the goal. Now, it's a progressive truth. Philippians 1, 6, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to pass, perfect it, until the day of Christ Jesus. So we're not on a self-help program as much as God is in that changing us program. And we cooperate with Him or we resist Him. And so as we think about getting it right in the church, following God's blueprint, the template, the pattern, is realize He wants us to get it right in terms of leadership. We ought to have people in our lives that set the example for us. Not perfectly, but they are passionate about living for Jesus and, and faithfully leading people down that path as well. But secondly, this is God's plan for everybody that knows Him. He wants God's people to be right. And He gets pretty specific. And He gave a long list of stuff in Titus 2, 1 through 10. And, and then I think He takes a step back and says, Hey, I want you to understand that this is, this is not a self-improvement program. This is a God program. It can only be a God thing, a Christ thing. It begins at the beginning. We come to know him, and he saves us from the penalty of our sin. What a motivating factor in our lives. And then realize that we have hope to live it out, no matter how many challenges we've had in our past and how many things that, that have become habits that are hard to break. Is that, look, I'm going to give you the power to overcome that. It might take some time here on this planet, but... I'm going to give you power over your sin. And then I want you to look forward. There's going to come a time where you're going to be set free from the presence of sin. Your sin and everybody else's. But in the meantime, realize that it's, it's pretty clear. It is clear that I want to purify you to be a people that, that live like I want you to live. I want you to be holy, separate to and separate from. Sanctification has the idea of of being separate, but it's not just separate from, but separate, separated to. It, it, it's separated to the good life, the life that, that is God's plan for your life, and, and to the one who can empower you to live it. But then it's separate from the sin which will destroy you and those around you. So what's the, what's the point this morning? It's pretty straightforward. If this is all true, let's, Let's live like it's a God thing. Not relying on our own strength, but the one who came and can change everything about us when we, when we, we passionately follow the one who does all this for us. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, as we have talked about so many things this morning that your word just speaks about, Father, I pray that we might be passionate about living it out. But for some this morning, the real challenge is have I, have I started this journey? 
And it only happens when we come to that place in our life, we realize who you are, that you love us, but you are holy. And then realize who we are. We are not holy, and we're filled with sin. And there's a penalty to that. Thirdly, that Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And then he invites us to surrender our lives to him, put our trust in him, and follow him faithfully and fully. And when we do that, then we begin the journey where we see how you change us day by day as we faithfully follow you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.